Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. A few reasons why Zoom parties suck so much, some science-backed proposals to make them better, and a few platforms that are trying to do it, a website that will play the radio for you from anywhere in the world and any time going all the way back to 1900. And J.R.R. Tolkien's house is up for sale. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Zoom parties are just not fun. After the many different incarnations of virtual birthday parties that my friends and I organized towards the start of the pandemic, by month five, everyone was very explicit that no matter what alternative we found for celebrating the birthdays without being face-to-face indoors, they did not want a Zoom party. There's the Zoom fatigue many people feel from being on video calls all day for work, of course, but why else have we all become to dread Zoom parties so much? Gretchen McCullough, writing in Wired, explained the problem, quote, Say you're having a Zoom birthday party. You've invited a couple dozen people, and liberated from the constraints of geography, most of them can come. You're seeing their faces as they pop in, how exciting, but suddenly, the birthday person turns into an ungainly hybrid of game show host and middle manager, calling on each friend and family member to give a snapshot update of their life for a few minutes before turning to the next. It's a birthday party filtered through the structure of a small classroom seminar. Unsurprisingly, guests tend to make an appearance, take a few moments in the spotlight to wish the birthday person many happy returns, say hi in the chat to other friends attending, and then awkwardly come up with an excuse to leave half an hour later. End quote. That description was painfully accurate to my experiences this year. And there are a ton of reasons why it's not an ideal situation, but McCullough identifies at least two root causes. Group size and autonomy. Research by social scientists has consistently shown that the maximum number of participants a conversation can have before splintering into different tracks is four. Four people. Even one more, and eventually you'll fall into different conversations or someone will check out. And at in-person parties, even if there are dozens of people there, this naturally happens. McCullough describes typical behavior at an in-person party, quote, There are multiple conversational options that you can move between. Sometimes the whole group might come together into a single conversational thread, such as when singing happy birthday or proposing a toast, but a party never stays there. If it does, it's a performance or a meeting. Crucially, people also need to have the autonomy to move fluidly between these smaller conversations, which is why host-assigned breakout rooms and parties at restaurants fall a bit flat compared to parties in more fluid spaces, unless people take it upon themselves to get up and sit at the other end of the table for a bit. End quote. So it's not just the magic number four, but also the freedom to let that natural cap and splintering happen. Fortunately, there are a number of platforms trying to solve this problem using something called proximity chat, described by McCullough as, quote, The basic idea is that you have an avatar or icon that can walk around virtual spaces or jump between virtual tables, and much like in real life, you can see and hear only the people who are nearby. This allows people to move themselves fluidly between conversational groups while still having a shared sense of the whole room, end quote. The main platform McCullough describes in the article, and the one that she says is the most reliable and the most accessible at the moment, is called Gather. But there are also others like Remo, Rambly, Cozy Room, Spatial.chat, and Topia. Among all the platforms, there's basically two broad types. 
table-based and map-based. In table-based ones, you can enter different virtual tables by clicking on the table and talking to just whoever else is there. You don't know what's going on anywhere else in any of the other tables, though. So it's similar to Zoom breakout rooms. McCullough points out that it's good for events whose objective is for people to talk with one another because, quote, the tech forces you to start mingling rather than stand in the corner awkwardly, end quote. Which, yeah, sounds good for networking or classes, but sounds awful for social situations, in my opinion. I mean, how often do you show up to an event, especially these days, where you don't actually want to participate, but you feel obligated to make an appearance? So maybe map-based chats would be better for situations like that. In those, you quote, move through conversations in space by moving your avatar near someone else's. When you're within a few paces of someone, you can see and or hear them through their audio or video feed. As you walk away from someone, their voice gets quieter. A few more paces and you can see someone's avatar in the distance, but you can't hear what they're actually saying. Map-based chat lets you move fluidly between conversations or wander around on your own, a potentially welcome break for introverts." End quote. While map-based platforms, especially when used all day by offices, may have a slightly creepy panopticon type of vibe, they are way better for that elusive mingling and chance encounter opportunity that anyone working from home has been missing since March, and which a lot of us have realized was what was really at the core of many social interactions, relationship building, and opportunities. Now, I haven't dove into any of these yet, so I should reserve judgment, but I'm kind of skeptical they will actually feel as fluid and informal as they're trying to be. I mean, if they are, I'll eat my words and be super stoked to have that kind of feeling in a virtual setting, but I think maybe the biggest thing that gets me, and this could be my southern upbringing, I don't know, but I feel like anytime someone would join a new conversation, you'd have to sort of acknowledge and introduce them a bit more than you would in real life where sometimes someone just hovers nearby until they cut in. And also, leaving a conversation virtually is a lot more awkward because you rarely have a reason. You know, at an in-person party, you can leave a conversation you're bored with with the excuse that you're going to go grab another drink or something from the snack table. I guess the bathroom excuse still kind of works virtually, kind of. McCullough acknowledges that this is one of the major limitations that still needs to be solved in some way. And that at least one platform has tried to do so with an emoji cocktail bar. It was basically a bar area where people could go to add an emoji to their display names, which, eh. And she does note, at least for now, that the novelty of these virtual spaces does give people plenty to explore, and thereby maybe an excuse to leave conversations by saying you want to go check out everything the platform has to offer. So I think these platforms are really cool. I'm excited to see how they develop and what ways they'll be used. I think that they are really going to take off with a lot of people, but I think maybe we're a little far from them catching on beyond the early adopter tech crowd. If you want to discover some new music or feel like you're traveling back in time, you should check out Radio. That's radio with five O's, one to represent each of the world's continental landmasses. Don't worry, though, you can type in anywhere from 3 to 20 O's in the URL bar and still get the same site. They bought all of the domains. And for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to call them radio in this segment. So radio has actually been around for several years, but it was brand new to me, so maybe it is for you as well. 
When you go to radio.com, you see a world map, and you can click on a country, not quite any country, but many of them, and then you click a decade at the bottom, anything from the 1900s to now. And then the site streams music from that time and place. You can also select slow songs, fast songs, and weird songs, although those toggles haven't really been working for me. And there is a shuffle mode and a taxi cab, which kind of lets you build a playlist, not by picking songs, but by picking an order of decades and countries to travel to. And finally, there is an islands mode where you can pick from established themes like kids, Christmas, black artists, and more. Notably, the countries do change accurately depending on what decade you're in. So, for example, East Germany is on there from the 50s through the 80s. And there's also a few fun extras on the map, like a shipwrecked in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which, if you click on it, you discover is actually the Titanic. And clicking on it allows you to listen to what the site says is the Titanic's original soundtrack. Like, the ship, not the movie. And while apparently there is quite a bit of information out there about all the music that was played on the ship before and as it sank, I think this particular website, it just defaults to the United States 1910s. All of the songs on the site are picked by curators, a group of DJs, producers, and artists who handpick every song, and it's all licensed to be streamable. There's also a premium option, which unlocks features like bookmarking and skipping songs, making this not just a novelty site, but something the creators are really trying to make an alternative to Spotify or Pandora. And it really is a very serious project. The curators are paid music experts who spend hours every day combing through tens of thousands of submissions from community contributions as well as their own extensive collections to find tracks that are high enough quality and match the aesthetic of the site. Quoting a 2016 profile of the site in The New Yorker, the result is that radio listeners, of whom there are now over 170,000, have access to music from inveterate collectors of Mando Pop, Afrobeat, Italo Disco, Yeah Yeah, and many other genres. Attention to detail is apparent in the collection, but elsewhere too. On Loading Radio's site, you are presented with a map of the world that was hand-drawn by Moreau and his partner Noemi First, an illustrator and radio's artistic director, using a quill pen and ink. End quote. I would never have guessed that the map was hand-drawn with a quill, but it's a nice touch. And the site is actively against algorithmically created music listening experiences. CEO Anne-Claire Trubat told The New Yorker, quote, I think right now on the internet there are so many choices that you end up listening to always the same things. Like you have your habits, and if you listen to Spotify, the algorithms will always get you back to what you know. End quote. Or, as The New Yorker described it, quote, An algorithm can never account for the intangible qualities of music the way a radio DJ or older sibling might. Radio fills this role elegantly. It takes advantage of one of the best things about the internet, the ability of people from all over the world to contribute to a common cause and rejects one of the worst, the dispiriting monotony of automated algorithmic curation, end quote. Honestly, I did not expect to like this site as much as I did when I stumbled upon it earlier this week thanks to Marina Amaral on Twitter, but it might legitimately be my new favorite. I just wish it had a mobile app. If you've ever wanted to stay the night in the house where J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, that wish may soon be a reality. And no, this is not yet another stunt from Airbnb, like their blockbuster and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air overnights. 
Tolkien's home, where he lived for 17 years with his family while teaching at Oxford and writing The Lord of the Rings, is back on the market, and a new charity organization of fans is trying to buy it and turn it into a sort of Tolkien-inspired cultural center. Some articles say that they're going to turn it into a Tolkien museum, because, kind of surprisingly, there actually aren't any centers dedicated to Tolkien in the world. But the charity, Project Northmore, is very specific on their website that due to local regulations, the house has to remain an actual residential property. So to adhere to that, and as a courtesy to neighbors who likely wouldn't want this becoming a high-traffic tourist spot, they are instead turning it into a location for creative retreats and community events. So writers would be able to book stays ahead of time and participate in writing seminars and other programs at the historic house. Many of those programs would, however, it seems, be Tolkien-adjacent, and part of the plans do include restoring the house. Quoting the website... It will be renovated so that the guest can experience what it would have been like to call upon the professor in 1940. Upstairs, the bedrooms would reflect the cultures he invented, and the garden would be restored to a beauty of which the inventor of Sam Gamgee would be proud. End quote. The house doesn't belong to the Tolkien estate or anything. He and his family moved out in 1947, and it's had various owners since then. It was classified as a grade 2 building when its current owners bought it back in 2004, which means that it is warranted efforts to preserve it because of its cultural significance of Tolkien having lived there. And perhaps because of that, the realtors seem to be playing ball with the charity organization, having removed the listing while the fans try to fundraise the £4.7 million required to buy the house. I think they have a pretty good shot of hitting their goal, given that they've got a number of authors as well as Shakespearean actors, musicians like Annie Lennox, and a slew of Lord of the Rings actors involved, including Martin Freeman and Ian McKellen. And the house itself is quite nice. It's close to Oxford University, but has ample garden space, including some trees that Tolkien himself planted. And it has 3,500 square feet of space, including six bedrooms, four bathrooms, and an open space ground floor. So definitely plenty of space to house a few writers during a retreat and host some community programs. And for anyone who doesn't think a trip to Oxford is in the bag even when it's safe to travel again, Project Northmore is hoping to host virtual events from the space as well. So check out their fundraiser in the show notes if you want to help make it a reality. And before I go, one more quick fun fact that I learned this week about J.R.R. Tolkien. So I mentioned earlier this week that the practice of writing letters to Santa originated with parents posing as Santa to write letters to their kids to remind them to behave. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien was one such parent, except his letters weren't so much disciplinary or pedagogic as they were fantastical. Over 20 years of his kids growing up, he wrote them a letter from Santa Claus, or an elf or a polar bear sidekick, about the various adventures that he'd been on in the North Pole that year. The letters were published posthumously by his family in the 70s as the Father Christmas Letters, and later Letters from Father Christmas, and some editions contain his original drawings that he decorated the letters and envelopes with. So super cool, could make a great holiday read or a gift for any Lord of the Rings fans in your life, or you could donate to the Project Northmore fundraiser in their honor. Certain donors will get their name in a guest book that will be displayed in Tolkien's former office. That is it for today. Long episode today. So I'm just going to go zone out to some 1960s Peruvian music. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. 